Father, we've just prayed about your broken world with so much suffering and pain and hardship going on and yet we acknowledge that we are broken too and so we need you to come and speak to us and to nourish us, to challenge us, to change us, to conform us, please, more into the likeness of your dear Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. If, um, if you were here a couple of weeks ago as we started this series, you might remember we, we began with a, quite a striking quote from uh, Lord Carey, the former Archbishop of Canterbury. Remember he said this, he said, he said, Christianity is just a generation away from extinction. So he saw a lack of engagement with the gospel, he saw pews emptying, he saw clergy disheartened, he saw buildings shutting. And he called the Anglican Church to to urgent action, to do something or die. Of course, to be fair, it's always the case that Christianity is a generation away from extinction because we can't go on living, we pass on to the next generation. But Lord Carey was urging the church to be urgent. And so with 2 Timothy in hand then, we thought about the urgency as Paul wrote to Timothy. He was a pastor in Ephesus and we saw there were pressures from outside the church. There was Alexander the metal worker who had done Paul a great deal of harm, wanting to silence the gospel. We saw, perhaps worse still, there were pressures from inside the church. There were crowds gathering around new teachers who were the flavour of the month, who teach the kind of stuff that we like to listen to. Soothing our itching ears. Nice to listen to, but not truth. And Paul will say people's faith had been shipwrecked. It was there as a little germ in 1 Timothy, but by 2 Timothy it seems to have grown and developed and spread into gangrene, destroying people's faith. And even on top of that... Paul is pretty sure that his time has come. This is it. For him, this is the end. This is an urgent letter from Paul. So one of the things I find striking as I read through to Timothy is how can Paul be so positive? There's a darkness, there's a realism about the situation. It's a very personal letter and we see something of Paul, his humanity, he's cold and he's lonely and he's struggling. But he doesn't drown in, in the despair of the letter. Do you get that? So one of the questions I'm left asking is how? Because as Christians, we are great at being negative and critical and we focus on what's wrong and everything's going to pot. It's a hobby that many of us excel in. Maybe we look around at our culture and we compare and contrast it with what it used to be like. Maybe it's as we face personal hardships and difficulties ourselves, bruising. Maybe it's those plans that didn't come out as we expected. And you see, Paul has got every reason for negativity in 2 Timothy. Every reason for being on the back foot, for being defensive, but, but he steps forward onto the front foot. For him, it's not a time of decline and simply weathering the storm and holding fast its growth and multiplication, developing new leaders. It's those who can guard the gospel after he's gone. Those who are going to be faithful stewards, those who will pass on to others and others and others. What's Paul's secret? Why is he so positive? 
I don't think he's just a kind of up sort of a guy. The tiggers of this world. Those who always see the positives. He's not the ostrich. He's not willing to engage with difficulties. Just kind of head in sand. Doesn't want to think about the reality of the situation. What's his secret? I think we saw something last week back in verse 12. Just glance back across the paragraph there. Why can he be positive? It's because he knew the God whom he serves. And he knew it was his mission. And Paul might be in prison. There might be every reason for despair. Every reason for doubt. But he's on the front foot because it's not about him. And so what's his charge to Timothy? Be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. Be strong, Timothy. Which we may have been expecting. I guess we're we're waiting for some kind of brave heart, rousing message. Come on, Timothy, gird your loins, let's go. But if you look at it again, the heart of the message cuts against the heart of our age. It is not search for the hero inside yourself. It is not believe in the power of positive thinking. It's not even clench your jaws and grit your teeth and go for it. It's not don't look in and find your stuff there to accomplish your dreams, the resources you need. It's be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus, which is very different. If you just stopped at be strong, if that was where the sentence ended, we may as well just go home. As John Stott puts it in his brilliant little commentary, he says, he might as well have told a snail to be quick or a horse to fly as command a man as timid as Timothy to be strong. So do you see, it matters that it is be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. Which means, Timothy, look to Jesus. Remember him. Find your daily resources in Jesus. Go to him for the grace that you need. We've already seen God's grace in 1 verse 9. He has saved us and called us to live a holy life, not because of anything else we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. And you see, we don't graduate from grace. It's not that he gets us in and then that we trundle along, but that he gives us the grace we need for each and every day and for each and every task that he calls us to. Even and especially when human speaking, humanly speaking, we think we're out of our comfort zone and we can't do this. That is when we know we need his grace. How does he do that? Well, the kids gave us a foreshadow of it in the kids slot. For the spirit God gave us, 1 verse 7, doesn't make us timid or afraid, but gives us power, love and self-discipline. So do you see, Timothy, you are to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. How does that happen? That happens through his Holy Spirit, who lives us in us, in, in, lives in us and equips us and enables us. It's that prayer each and every morning. Lord, I can't do this today. Help me. Be with me. Fill me afresh. Supply the grace that I need for the things that you call me to for this day. Timothy, be strong and God will enable you. And what will he enable you to do? Front foot. Multiply. 
You see, verse 2, the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. And that is a key verse in any church and in any generation, particularly perhaps if we've got Lord Carey's comments in the back of our minds. Fear of extinction. We saw it with the kids last week. Again, remember the four generations you get in 2 verse 2, you get Paul, who's spoken to Timothy, who's to teach reliable people, who will teach others. Four generations of gospel people. This is vital that we grab onto this. We're not to be dams of God's grace, but conduits through whom it passes to the next generation. Passing on what we've received from him. Looking to what happens after we've gone. And so one of the things we said two weeks ago was the desire for us to encourage more of a culture of nurturing one another, investing in one another, training up one another. And we called it, there on the PowerPoint, 1 in 21. So I take it most of you eat three meals a day. All of us have got seven days a week. Three times seven is 21. And the thing is, you eat in your house and I eat in my house, or you eat by your desk and I eat my, by my desk. And we all do that, so why don't we start eating together? And why don't we do more than just eat together? Why don't we read a book together or study the Bible together or pray for each other, being generally open and vulnerable with each other? Investing in each other, discipling, mentoring one another. Intentionally, deliberately in a planned way, in a discussed way, in a, in, in a way that will, will do us good. One in 21. That, that there's a way to do 2 Timothy 2 verse 2. Who, who could you invest in? It could just be for the now. It could be for lifelong. A habit, something to have, a pattern, year on year. You meet with somebody once a week, seeking to pass on the gospel, apply the gospel. And perhaps they would be the kind of person who will do it with others and others and others. On the front foot, multiplying, spotting, nurturing, equipping, passing on the gospel. Of course, it's a thing for people like me who stand at the front. But I reckon if you're involved in any kind of ministry in the church, who can you be pouring your life into? Who can you be investing in? I've said before, but one of my lifelong prayers, and I find it a difficult prayer to pray, is is who can I invest in who will go on and surpass me? Who will do a better job than me? Whom the Lord will use in mighty ways far beyond in which he's used me. I think that's part of our calling as Magdalene Road. You will know Oxford is a transient city. It's a city full of people who are just passing through. Some of you will be those kinds of people here this morning. Maybe just here for the week or for the month or for the year. Some of you will know what it feels like to be investing in those folk year on year on year. But we have an extraordinary opportunity in Oxford to do kingdom work in the world. We have people like Andreas come to us. What an opportunity to be praying with and building him up and nurturing him and then sending him back to Namibia. 
We have a limited window. We have to be on the front foot, generously, urgently passing on the gospel to others. And it's hard to say goodbye to people. But that's when we need this kingdom mentality that it's not just about us and our little church. It's God at work all over the world. It's hard work. Paul knows it's hard work. So he doesn't give us words so much to describe what this ministry looks like. He gives us pictures to reflect on three Three familiar pictures from everyday life about putting in the hours, about toil, about seeing fruit later on. Have a look at verse 3 with me. Join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. Similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. The hard-working farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Reflect on what I'm saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all this. Three pictures. First one is soldier. There is Paul, prison cell, calling Timothy to join him in suffering. And one of the things about soldiers is that they are people who endure. They keep going. They press on. They persevere. And soldiers aren't complainers. It's not a surprise to them that the food is basic and that the hours are long and there are enemies firing at me. That that's part of the job description. It's expected. And the other thing about soldiers is they only have one commanding officer because on a field of war, you need to know who's in charge. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer, by which I take it he doesn't mean we shy away and huddle together and distance ourselves from the world, but he does mean we know who our commanding officer is. We know that he calls the shots, that our primary allegiance is to him. We wholeheartedly live for him wherever we are. At home, your commanding officer is always Jesus. In your workplace, always Jesus. With your family, always Jesus. In university, always Jesus. Out with your friends, it's always Jesus. In your car, Even there, always Jesus. On your own, it's always Jesus. We're always soldiers for him, serving as if to please him. He is our commanding officer. And you will know where this bites for you this week. You will know where and when and with whom the temptation is to serve another commanding officer. Some of us know we're people pleasers. It's the daily battle because others shape us. That They shape what we do and what we say and what we don't say and who we are. But Jesus is our commanding officer. A while ago, a friend, a friend called Roger, 
who worked for the Bank of England, told me of the daily habit that he would follow, seeking to live for Jesus in that position that he has, privileged position that he has. He said that without fail, each morning, as he entered the office through the revolving doors, he would pray, Good morning, Lord Jesus. Help me please to live for you today. He got it. He knew something of what it meant to please his commanding officer. Soldier. Secondly, athletes. Maybe an appropriate metaphor for the Oxford Half Marathon Day. But as you look at them running past you, think perseverance and efforts and training and discipline. And you see, if you want to win the gold medal, you can't make up the rules yourself. You can't cut corners. There are no shortcuts. Glory only ever comes after suffering. It's certainly true at the Greek games that Paul is probably alluding to. The winner of the event would wear a, a, a wreath, a crown, a green crown. But every event had its rules. You didn't just get a crown for being. You didn't just get one for turning up. It wasn't like primary school. That There weren't crowns for everyone. There were crowns for winners. For those who abide by the rules. And so as Paul would put it in 2 Corinthians, he says, we've renounced secret and shameful ways. We minister transparently. We're not deceitful. We compete according to the rules. It's not just a question of results, it's how you serve. It's hard work, but there are no shortcuts. And then farmer. Someone said there's nothing glamorous about farmers. Soldiers and athletes, they might have applause, they might have crowds, cheering, awards, recognition. Farmers just have blisters. They smell of manure. But farmer, it's slow. It's exhausting. It's hard work. It's patience. It's the results that come later. The hard-working farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Timothy, being a minister of the gospel, it is like being a farmer. It's hard work. Being a faithful Christian who passes on the next generation is hard work. And we don't like talk of hard work. For some of us that grates and we switch off and it's why, while some of us are lazy, Proverbs would describe us as sluggards and so those who don't plough in season, so at harvest time we look and find nothing and we know that's kind of us really. Some of us are already busy with all kinds of things. Loads of stuff to fill our week with and the struggle with the fact that our faith is to be active as well and it's particularly busy in Oxford. But I think some struggle because we've reacted against a kind of legalism. And so any thought of effort or hard work and our, our gospel antennae get a bit twitchy because maybe we've forgotten grace. But you know, friends, God's grace is never at the expense of hard work. 2 verse 1 should make that uber clear for us. 
God's grace is never at the expense of hard work. James mentioned it earlier, but as a church, we owe a great debt of thanks to those who do unglamorous jobs at Mordham Road. It's the weekly hard work of setting up on a Sunday, putting out chairs, making coffee, sorting out PA, doing creche and kids' work each week, every week, every week. Those behind the scenes who organise teams, who cook a meal for someone in need, who prepare for junior church or for 10 or for home groups or who print flyers and distribute them, prepare barbecues that we'll be enjoying later. For those in years gone by, the the over 55s, many of whom not able to be with us here this morning because of trying to get down the Ifley Road, but thinking of decades of quiet, faithful service, who work hard to keep the church going, who, when it was just six people, laboured and persevered. Soldiers, athletes, farmers, strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. There's a question that we need to ask, and that is, is it the idea of hard work that stops us shouldering the hard work that we're called to? Maybe it's just the general week by week being part of a family using the gifts that God has given us for the sake of everybody else. Maybe it's the hard work of investing in others, picking up this one in 21 thing and and running with it, making it happen. There are always spaces on teams. We'd love to have you involved. There are always people who would like to be met with. We'd love to have your time. Soldier, athlete, farmer. And they're meant to provoke us So look at verse 7. Reflect on what I'm saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all this. You see, into your homework diary, you write, spend some time reflecting on these metaphors. That's what Paul is saying to us. Work your way over them again, reflect on them, and ask the Lord to give you insight into what they mean what that looks like. What does it mean for you to be soldier, athlete, farmer? And it's around about this time we start to despair. Because we think, I'm just about got my head above water. Life is already busy and complicated and stressful. And you're telling me, There's more stuff to be cracking on with. But again, remember 2 verse 1. How are we strong? Because our hearts run away from it. That They think it's all about us. No, no, no. Strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. Yes, it's hard work and suffering and single-minded devotion and obeying the rules and patterns that the Lord gives. Yes, it's soldier, athlete, farmer. But remember, strong in his grace. He equips us. And maybe some of us thinking, why bother? Why is it worth it? Why should we listen to Paul in this? 
Well, look again at verses 8 to 10, and you'll see four great reasons to bother. Paul says, remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel for which I am suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Why bother? Because of Jesus, because of Paul, because of the word of God and because of eternity. Let these four things shape you. Firstly, because of Jesus, verse 8. You've got seven little words about Jesus there. Raised from the dead, descended from David. He is the heart of the good deposit. He is the core of the gospel. Descended from David, he's a man. He was born, he lived, he suffered, he died. And then raised from the dead, death could not hold him. Because he's divine. He's God. Remember him. It's a message about him. And he's boiled it down to seven little words for us. This is the message about Jesus, but his is the example of Jesus too. He is the one who has suffering now, glory later. He is the one whom we follow and he is the one whom we preach. Remember Jesus. Secondly, why bother? Because of Paul. You see the end of verse 8. This is my gospel for which I am suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. It's not this is the gospel. No, this is Paul's gospel. He believed it such that he lived for it. He suffered for it. Again, John Stott says, the blessing of God rested upon the ministry of the Apostle Paul in quite exceptional measure. No doubt many explanations of this could be given, but I find myself wondering if we attribute it sufficiently to the zeal and zest, the almost obsessional devotion with which he gave himself to the work. He continues, he gave and did not count the cost. He fought and did not heed the wounds. He toiled and did not seek for rest. He laboured and asked for no reward, except the joy of doing the Lord's will. When you think soldier, athlete, farmer, think of Paul. Think of his extraordinary labour for the kingdom. And there he is, in prison, chained for this gospel. Paul is chained, but look, the word of God is not chained. What does that mean? Why does that keep us going? It means we can have a confidence that even though Paul is shackled in his cell, even though he is finishing the race, he knows that the word of God is not chained as him. It's as if it's got a life of its own. Yes, God works through people, but God is the main missioner. His word is powerful. His word is active, unchained. Martin Luther, the famous reformer, said this. He said, I simply taught, preached and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip and Amsdorf, the word greatly worked. I did nothing, the word did everything. You see, it means when you're asleep, God is still at work. And it means when you're having an off day, God is still in charge. 
It means it's his mission. It means that his word is unchanged. It means it's not all about us. This um, struck home particularly for me, um, perhaps us as a family, reading a book at the breakfast table with the kids. Um, We don't do it every day, but it's a great book when we do. And it's all about the growth of the gospel in um, Central Africa back in the 50s, 60s and 70s. It's a kid's book, but it's so heartwarming and encouraging to see the fruit from faithful, prayerful individuals relying on the Lord, relying on, on his leading and teaching Jesus Christ raised from the dead, descended from David, to those who have never heard it before. And frankly, some of the stories are incredibly moving. Um, one tells the story of a guy who hears the gospel and he believes in the Lord Jesus, he trusts him and he is trained to tell others. He goes to Bible college. And he comes back, and he gets horrible leprosy. And he's very angry. And he has to go to a colony, where you'll find him bitter and confused. and Metaphorically, he is chained. It feels like it's game over. But the story continues in the colony. And there you have... God's word doing its work amongst patients who are horribly disfigured. Amongst doctors who are bitter and do not want to be there. And at times my boys look at me and think, why is this grown man crying? It's not even eight o'clock in the morning. But you see, Paul got it. These guys get it. They knew that God was in charge. His word does its work. And we think it's all about us. But even if we contract leprosy, even if we are chained, his word is not chained. The reason to bother is this is God's mission and not ours. And the fourth one, and the final one, and I think the crowning one is in verse 10. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Do you see, he looks ahead and he sees the eternal glory of the Lord Jesus and he longs for his people to be there. He longs for the elect to be there. He longs that those who were given grace before the beginning of time, that they may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus. And so he endures Why does he bother? Not for him, but for them, for the glory of God. Jesus receiving glory then means that Paul suffers now. So easily we can be so half-hearted. And we long for comfort and we long for an easy life. But don't you long to be so captivated and motivated and driven and affected by the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory that like Paul, you will literally endure anything. You will go wherever he sends you. That his eternal glory will will cast such a shadow over your heart and your life and over all that you are that you are willing to suffer. Willing to press on. Willing to keep going. Timothy. Maudlin Rose. Be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus.
pass on his message to those who will do the same and do it in his strength and his grace. And serve like the single-minded soldier as he obeys his commanding officer. And compete according to the rules like the athletes. And work hard like a farmer. And why bother? Do it because of his message and the example of Jesus. Do it because of Paul and his chains. Do it because the word of God is alive and unchained. And do it for the elect and for their salvation. And so most of all, over everything, don't do it for yourself. Do it for the glory of God. Let's pray. Our Father, when we read passages like this, we acknowledge before you afresh our weakness, our timidity. And so we thank you that your grace is sufficient for every day. Make us strong, we pray. Make us strong as individuals. Make us strong as a church family. But make us strong in your grace. Help us please never to forget Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. Help us please to to endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that's in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. But thank you for your grace that makes us strong. In your Son's name we pray. Amen.